Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our ongoing foundation courses and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. In this episode, Nancy Chen, a 6-2 sacral generator on the roof, shares how human design came into her life and led to a greater experience of self-love and acceptance. With an extensive background in mind-body modalities and counseling therapy, Nancy speaks about human design as a framework for guiding us back to ourselves and the importance of the practitioner's frequency in therapeutic approaches. We also discuss deconditioning, quadrite variable, and her experience playing different roles within WA and pentadynamics as a six-line witness on the left angle cross of masks. Lastly, we touch on the wisdom potential of the undefined solar plexus, themes of avoidance and truth, and her practice and offerings. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So thanks for joining us today, Nancy. It's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. We'd love to start by hearing how human design came into your life and how long you've been experimenting with this system. Oh, how did I come to human design? <laughs> it feels like a long, long, long story with a lot of episodes there. If I want to put some simple words, I feel like there is a, a life that is a past life before this moment. And there is this life after human design, like polarity of my episode of life. And I think the first part for me, it was more like, like I had every reason to be happy, but I couldn't be happy. Mm. I wanted everyone to like me, but I just couldn't even like myself, even though I can make everyone like me with all my strategies. And then what's even more funny is when everyone liked me, I wasn't able, I just still couldn't able to like myself. And when I tried to love myself with all the modalities or with all the therapies that I went through or trainings, well, it's like the self-improvement programs, all these new age, all those psychotherapies or different modalities, like all these people say, if I could be more like this or that, I could be better in this way or that way. If I could be more enlightened, <laughs> then I can be free from suffering. So none of that even worked. I think it, it helped in a certain degree, but it just never worked. Before the human design, like how I tried to really escape or deny how I was so faking, like putting a mask, faking to everybody else, like how I beat myself up with all this unworthiness, self-sabotage. At that time, I didn't know there was undefined ego or all these mechanic words, but it was just very purely, I hated myself, even though I did everything to make myself love myself. I just couldn't. So there was this deep um, living experience with like this self-betrayal and this ignorant yeah, so this is interesting. It's like, yet when there is moments of um, lightness in the air, when it's like when the sun comes down, the darkening of the night, no one else knows more than I do. Like I was the liar. I was lying to the whole world. It was the moment that I just couldn't hide the truth that I've been hiding the whole life, being a liar to myself. So for me, that was the moment I think was really, I don't know why, when there is no other modality I can use, the human design come to my life. <laughs> And was it introduced to you by someone or did you discover it yourself? Actually, it was introduced by someone for much longer time than I actually really engaged with it. Uh, it was around the Saturn return about 10 years ago that someone did introduce to me. But I just thought, oh, that's another astrology. I didn't really know what it is about. The person offered me certain kind of reading, but I was just treating it more just like astrological reading. And I didn't really pay attention to it. 
But then I went to different journey. I went to like movement therapy. I moved follow more like a Ramana Maharaji, like Gangaji, that kind of like a non-duality teaching lineage. And then it's only until I think the recent four years I really started seeing, wow, what is human design about? I really start living in the experimentation with human design. Yeah. Human design shows up or is introduced to you in this time period when a lot of these themes that you're talking about around self-love and basically lying to yourself, kind of realizing the amount of conditioning that you are working with on a certain level. And it shows up as another modality roughly around that same time period that grabbed you in some way? Yes, but uh, for me, it was more to me still a concept. It's a logical system. So I still identify as another a manual or recipe on the book, on the paper. So I didn't really pay too much attention to it at the time, which now when I look back, I see that's totally supposed the way it's supposed to be. Because around that time, I went into more of the somatic therapy. I would say I went into more of the training in the somatic area, which later on I realized in human design, I think that's one of the biggest trap is people didn't realize human design was something to do with the embodiment, <laughs> to do with the form principle. So on the surface, because of these so intelligent, logical explanations, and there's so much intellectual knowledge in there, so it can really, I would say, cover the true essence of human design. Yeah. Yeah, it's like human design comes in as this somewhat of a mental, logical system through the mind that you can see the beauty, the symmetry, the logic of it. And yet, unless it gets into the body, we realize that this is something about our lived experience. It's kind of giving us a frame of reference or a, a map that then we can pick up and look through as part of our experience, which, like you're saying, is ultimately about a, a type of embodiment, form consciousness or form intelligence. Yes. And I remember that when the moment I truly get into human design to start really have this embodied sense of it is after I did uh, 18 months, I call it the body wisdom, movement therapy kind of a practice or training. And that was sort of like the end of all my movement therapy, all my embodied, like I was a detoxification. <laughs> I was so in touch with my body through all these like Feldenkrais, body mind centering. I was a psychosomatic kind of modality. And then I kind of like finished all the peak of that. And then it was human design coming in. I totally started looking at the intellectual side, the starting of it. And just to see all the validity of the thread that I was like fascinated with. Actually, Ra was really a futuristic artist. You know, like he really was a very futuristic abstract artist. He sees what was in the future. But those embodied modality was much more developed more recently. Whereas Ra saw it the moment that Ra passing the knowledge of human design, he already knew there was this, but I think there is a lack of awareness of you know, what to do with it. What do we do with cultivating the embodied response or the embodied uh, intuition? <laughs> I wonder if a lot of that somatic work that you did sort of laid a deconditioning foundation for you to be able to receive the knowledge on a deeper level when it actually clicked for you. Did you feel like those somatic practices helped you to decondition yourself? Yes, absolutely. I feel like all this open ego conditioning, undefined G conditioning, all of that was really being, how to say, detoxified through all these previous embodiment therapies. So I remember all these years, I had all these 
I just didn't know why I was crying, but I had this massive cry. I remember like on some of those uh, movement therapy modality, there is no use of my mind to come up with like talk therapy or story. But I just went into these solid five hours, no nonstop of tearing. Without me knowing why I was crying, there's no story. <laughs> and I couldn't stop it too. The funny thing is I couldn't stop it. So there is a few momentum of body just naturally want to release something. And even until human design, I can still see I have a, like a ritual, like waking up, just moving my body, just in a very improvised way, spontaneous way. And there is also no story, but I will just have a water comes out, whether you call it tear or not. It's just like very soothing, nourishing as a water liquid. And so to me, maybe that's all this kind of distorted, uh, undefined center conditioning. I don't know. There is no research for me to validate it or justify it. But I can just feel they really help me to be ground in my body. Yeah, it makes me think about the difference between crying as something that could be an emotive expression of something versus the kind of crying that just feels like a release, just feels like the body letting go, which to me feels like a big part of the deconditioning process. I know it has been for me. I know we all three have undefined solar plexus. And many times I found myself before and after the human design in these what felt like crying release states that I didn't even fully understand. It just felt like what my body had to do at that time. Mm. Yes, Amy. And like you said, there is a difference between the motiveless tear versus the motivated tear, which I think is more of the traditional psychology, the school of psychology, or like we say, the personality-driven kind of therapy. I call it a voluntary therapy that we go into a looping of story, re revisiting uh, some childhood trauma and go back to different kind of conflict or triggering point. And we talk about it and then we're trying to provoke the tears. There is that school. And that's what I experienced before all these um, psychotherapy, kind of like those embodiment practice. I could see the only time that I can release my emotion was going to see a counselor or a therapist. You know, for like first, I think since the age of 17, I had to go through the first 10 years going to through the talk therapy to be able to identify certain story for me to bring tears to it. The funny thing with it is I don't want to make a judgment, but it's more like I can just be end up in the loop, never get out from that. This is what I found with human design. It also helped me to press some button to unrelease those kind of, I would say, the penta helped me to release some of those long-term story that I hold it to as a result of identification from the traditional psychotherapy. Like, okay, this is your family constellation. This is the problem with your mom or with dad. Or even until nowadays, my colleague, like they're just so mm, wonderful, like intellectual psychologists. But they were still pointing me to if I have a chat with them, they were still pointing to say, oh, this might still be the problem. You never had a dad. Or there might be still this problem. But actually for me, I never felt there was this truly embodied sense with the pain anymore. But if you just peel at a, look at the personality side, we can still be trapped in that. So I wouldn't say that's the right or wrong, good, bad, but I just feel like it can be dangerous. People can be trapped in the loop. Yeah, which I have seen like clients being in the same therapy modality for 10 years, but still there is still in the same episode. The page still hasn't been turned over. I remember having friends in New York who were in psychoanalysis for decades and it had that quality to it in hearing them talk about it sometimes like it was the looping of certain stories and then almost using that space and that time to keep looping certain stories. 
I think for me, the first time it shifted was on a rolfing table. I was having a rolfing session and I didn't even really understand what it was. Somebody said, go get rolfed. And it's this can be kind of intense physical body modality. And I'm lying on the table and the rolfer touched something in my solar plexus and I just started crying and all of this stuff started coming out and even sort of memories started flooding through me. And some of them were happening so fast, I couldn't even keep track of it. And my mind was going, do I need to remember this? Or maybe I should write this down or what does this mean? And and the rolfer just kind of put her hand on me and she just said, don't worry about it. Just let it come out. And in that moment, it was such a relief just to let it come out. And in that moment of release to not have to try to figure out what it meant or what it was about, or if there was something conceptual about it that I had to hold on to. And you mentioned the Penta analysis and kind of looking at family patterns and family dynamics and also things like family constellations. I took a Locke's family analysis course four years back now or whenever it was. This kind of goes under the heading of working with human design is kind of a frame that allows us to kind of re-see things or to look at things from a different point of view. And I had the most profound experience in that course, just listening to the lectures and going through and, and, and the classes in a group setting is the more that I learned about the pentadynamics and that how the families kind of operate according to the way human design looks at it. It was like a complete reframing of so much of my childhood and, and earlier years in my life. I had unusually deep and profound reaction to that or emotional experience that came out around that, which felt like it just picked a bunch of stuff up and released it. You know, I was just kind of like left processing it and like, wow, this is intense. But it's just like you were saying, I just, that alone for me was just, it shifted so much. And I think it just cleared out a lot of old material or allowed me to change my relationship with it without a lot of work, without a lot of processing without a lot of story. It was like it happened over a course of a few classes. I was like, wow, what this guy is saying, the way that it is, and it looks like it, and it makes sense, then wow, it's a thing. Yes, I totally resonate with both of what you said. There's a saying with the Penta analysis, coming from the therapeutic background with family constellation, and I thought, oh, I already kind of spent a lot of time dealing with my childhood traumas and family issues. Only until really I also went to Alok's Penta analysis course. Wow, that was really, it's kind of like the sand. Suddenly there was this um, cyclone. So when I'm talking to you, there is this cyclone going on in, in New Zealand. And I just feel this just total final cyclone blow every sand away from my box of blaming, faulting, guilting, shaming. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Like makes me to see, wow, there's no point of pointing finger to anyone whether it's a victimization or perpetrator story, whether it's me being wronged or me have wronged others, we are just totally this vulnerable sand in there. We had no choice to change it. And then I also see the polarity of what I used to believe as being so not okay or wrong was totally actually supporting my individuality. So for me, went to the Penta analysis was to realize my life without a father, I never really had a formal Penta dynamic. It was only me with my mother, or it was me with just a very flexible environment, changeable environment. I think in the old, old like traditional psychological therapy that I was self-identified as being orphaned. Also, I was looking at the war dynamic, how the one-child policy at the time when I was born, it was the implementation of that, the year, how that really changed the whole structure of the sociology impact or individuality. So for me to see it was 
Wow, no wonder I maintain my individuality without so much of the penta conditioning by me not really have a so-called proper traditional harmonious family structure. And then all these like melancholy or loneliness that I used to went to through therapy on sadness was actually part of the byproduct of my or the specialty of my individuality. It really opened me another window to be thankful for me not having a panda, <laughs> no, like not a like a panda like everyone else. And then also for me to open lens to see the society of China that I was studying sociology before. But it's only until human design when I study with Alok through panda, and then I come to more studying of the Godhead and the Wa. Now I really start to understand why there is so much of this individuality happening in China, the society now with the generation born after 1985. With this one-child policy, there is no longer the solid penta dynamic. Different from 1970s or 60s, there was a strong communist kind of bonding. You know, the war conditioning and penta conditioning that people just don't have that expression of individuality. It was very different, and it's much easier to control at that time. So I just really see. How everything just、uh, makes sense for each other. So, are you saying then it seems to you sociologically like that actually opened up much more room for individuality there in China than was there prior to that policy because you didn't have those same influences available anymore? Yes. So that's why nowadays you can hear I would say the older generation always complain. The tribal people always complain. Why the children nowadays are so self-centered? Why they are so selfish? You know, there is a lot of criticism. But then, I what I witnessed was those people. They are just much more being themselves. They are much more empowered in themselves, in just being them. They don't really care so much about to please others or to need to fit into the big picture of that. I don't know whether you want to say whether it's good or bad, but I just see it. It is a a phenomenon that how somehow these whole political policies or these war conditioning support that to happen, and then also for me to see how the China evolved from the, you know, the communist way to more capitalized way, and for me it was also to understand, you know, what is war all about? Why is all about, you know, in a very simple term, it's all about money, <laughs> survive through money, or make sure we dealing with all the consequences of sex of reproduction. So for me, what I can really see was, you know, China is like no one really wanted to have children anymore, which is a global phenomenon. And then, what are they really focusing on? Is money. There is a lot of thing about the policy also comes in when China was open up. It's about the, you know, we just passed the Gate of Revolution. When I was reading about Ray Vijing, and I thought, oh, this is what is telling the story of the early nineteen nineteen nineties. Once there were a lot of you know like change in you know cultural revolution or the wars happening. Like I think nineteen nineteen eighties was this transition from all the chaos before. I wanted to have a new order, but then you know the people in the top of the hierarchy, <laughs> they are very smart. They know how to control people to prevent the the weak people or the poor people who come from poverty or with less intellectual knowledge is to make sure they have enough food to eat. Make sure the necessity, the material necessity, got fulfilled. So when everyone is comfortable, no one wanted to bring revolution. No one will go to Tiananmen to protest again, like the Cultural Revolution time. From the political point of view, there is a, a strategy to make sure that we go into capitalism. Capitalism also, in a certain way, ensures individuality. In a certain way. You know, because money is a very individual thing. It's like, okay, I don't really believe in religion. I don't believe in your story. I don't have a passion to go with this or that. I just go with something that is measurable. 
and it's about me <laughs> to survive as me. If I have money, I can survive as me. So I can see there is a lot of uh, fading off of this tribal bonding in China too. Even China comes from, you know, the Confucianism, which was a similar time the Chinese I Ching was uh, discovered at the time. It was all about family. But now it's just very different. Yeah. So you mentioned this piece about having this journey through those psychotherapy modalities and then into the more somatic practices and then having human design land in you in some way. Do you have a sense of how these different somatic modalities potentially as a deconditioning support or a, a way of supporting deconditioning? Do you see that as something that can be paired with human design? Oh, absolutely. Especially there is a many gurus I can mention, but for example, if I would say the most influential for me, like the uh, maybe inherited from Gestalt therapy, but it's more like a movement therapy and body-mind centering. She's the one that I would say assimilating different kind of pathway, including like say voice healing, neurocellular pattern, a bit like a Feldenkrais, but in a much more improvised way. But she studies much more with embryology. So this is the part that I always felt for my own understanding with human design is uh, that's also one part of my art therapy that in my own way that I always draw like fetus, like, uh, you know, those, those baby fetus, how the fetus or how the, we have, uh, I don't know, personality crystal, design crystal imprinted in us. From the moment of the fetus was formed, we have all the lines of conditioning surrounding the fetus. From the embryological point of view, it's just more like this body-mind centering helped me to coming back to the time before I was born. It gave me this, um, <laughs> I would say, felt experience of that. It was really interesting. If you go to any people who have that uh, education, they, they can give you a lesson. They do this touch work with uh, body-mind centering, but it wasn't like a massage. It was just purely they use a finger touch somewhere in your body. And it's maybe like a, a bit like cranial psychotherapy, but from the body-mind centering, they are just like feeling your tissues. They are feeling your tissues. They are touching your bone. It's different from the texture that touch your tissues or muscles or your cells. So it's about the cellular healing in that sense. But it's very hard to explain unless you have an embodied experience with that. So with what Amy, you mentioned before, when you went with the rough therapy, the same with me too, was that when I went for the session with body-mind centering, when they touch me, I can feel there is this epigenetic looping. <laughs> I feel like I went to some cosmo place and there is this um, wiring of something that was in my generational trauma or something got healed without we even talk anything, do anything. It was just a fingertip touching somewhere in me yeah. for extended period of time. But what I really felt later on was, it's really about the practitioner. I think any school of practice, whether it's the traditional therapy or whether you know, it's a, it can be a chiropractor or it can be anyone without we need to put a judgment on them, but it really depends on how they handle it, how they approach their practice in their embodied way. So in their transmission with another person, they're with you, something magical happened in the energetic exchange. So I wouldn't say it's just totally because there was these wonderful schools of the knowledge was wonderful, but it's also how the practitioner, they really had their own profound integration of the therapy, which is like a, similar to human design. The book is a book, but it's like the food is the same plate of food. But when you eat it or I eat it, the body does its magic to digest it in a very unique way. And then we can have a waste, we can have a different expression of it in a very unique way. Yeah. And then whoever gets benefit from it, 
never know why they get benefit from it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the mystery, right? Mm. That kind of moment of contact. You can't always explain it. And mm. to me, it also highlights something about timing, like how Ra so often emphasized, you know, if it's your time to receive something, if it's your time to wake up to something and the forces around you and the circumstances align with that, and then it's a moment, you know, but there's a timing to that that we're not necessarily in control of. And yet we find ourselves in a certain place at a certain moment with a certain person and something's happening. Yeah. And the other thing to highlight is I think you're saying about the frequency of the practitioner. Are they embodying it? What frequency are they holding? You could have two different people working with the same modality, the same system, the same body of knowledge and have a completely different experience coming through person to person or in that interaction. Yes. That's the most important point was that there is certain school of knowledge when they educate the practitioner, they can come with a much more objective lens, much more openness. Whereas there is some other school of knowledge, the person who created that school of you know, modality, you can look at the body graph, you can understand there is a subjectivity with why they created this or not. When it comes to you know, the practitioner I mentioned about the body-mind centering, because the school, the philosophy is all about, I remember what Bonnie was saying was that you need to be confident in not knowing. When I went through the educator program, the thing, the first thing that she said was just, you really need to be just not knowing. And then from the place of not knowing, then you start to know the other person, but without the lens or filter of your own judgment, you know, what should be. So very often, even we come with a somatic therapy, people still ask you, what is suppose that I should be feeling? You know, what is that pain supposed to feel like? You know, I think I'm feeling this. You know, very often we hear people, I think I'm feeling this, or I think I am sad. I think I am angry. But when they explain to you, you know, it is not exactly, you know, what they identify with, but they're thinking. So the thinking can lead to how they feel. This is very commonly, you know, there are schools of, you know, you can create your own reality. You know, one kind of school goes with that way. I feel the choosing Ra's way or the Ra's form principle to me is more connected with, you know, from the place of not knowing, just be curious and open to it and see what comes. And if that comes, it's supposed to come, means you are ready for it. But if, you, if it, that, that doesn't come, that means, okay, you know, that means you probably still not be okay for it. What you're describing is it allows us to put some distance between, you say, the mind and our embodied experience and what's coming up naturally in that moment. We were talking about this earlier before we started the recording, where we can see a lot of that even in human design, where people come into human design and you're given this really interesting, amazing map. It's almost like you try to fit yourself to it in a way, as opposed to holding it with a type of openness, curiosity as an experiment, and then seeing in your daily life, does this make sense? Is this point of reference that I'm given here, is that what's happening right now? And then you kind of work it out as you go, kind of like putting the cart before the horse or trying to eat the menu, as they say. Oh, I'm going to become this thing, which you can kind of see why someone might go down that road to take it that way, but it becomes another mind-based identification or fixation. And we see that in a lot of different areas of life, you know, people do that in astrology all the time, for example, and I'm this, I'm that. And I think it's something we all have to develop our own personal relationship with through our lived experience. 
Mm. Yes, I totally agree. And I think there's a problem with most of the schools of teachings because there is still a presentation like how do you teach it in a way that is not teaching it. <laughs> you know, how can you really teach it? Because you, in a way, people wanted to do engage with it. They still need to have a certain level degree of believing in it. You need an initiator to initiate there. If people totally don't believe in, they don't even want to try it. So mm -hmm. I think that is the difficulty with any kind of schools or modality in a way. Like they are selling it without trying to sell it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like sometimes teaching is, or even doing a reading is, sometimes it starts to feel like trying to seduce somebody into being curious. <laughs> it's mm. sort of like, how can I seduce this person into being curious about their actual experience so that there's a pathway to come to it for yourself. Mm. It seems to me that what comes out of that is something that's actually much more trustworthy, the adoption of, of an overlay, you know, another conditioning overlay. I love how you put it about the being comfortable with not knowing. I've never put it quite that way, but if I think about the somatic therapists that I've been around in my life that seem to me to be the most effective and enlightening, that was the quality that they all had. They had this really secure place they were coming from of just pure curiosity. Here I am, human being to human being, and I'm curious about what's going to happen. And I don't know what's going to happen. And that's okay. That's the point. <laughs> you know, the point is eat you honestly mm. in this moment and let's see what happens. Yes. It's like um, just noticing what you are noticing, yes. but there is not a period. There is not a dot, dot, dot. There is just empty space after that. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, being confident in not knowing and then open to knowing. It's very different. Uh, yeah, from the place of not knowing, then you're open to knowing. And if there's something you wanted to know, then the moment you're opening to it, it's already releasing the pattern, the fixed, the holding pattern mm -hmm. that something was trapped in there. You know, there is this known identified pattern. So there is already automatic releasing in it. That's what I found very fascinating of like, to me, it was more like that beginning moment of self-acceptance, like the true self-acceptance, you know, like people coming to human design, when we do a reading, we have to touch on this is, you know, not self. You show people, you know, when you're leaving your design course, you show people, oh, this is not self and this is self. And it can just be another measurement tool. It can really trigger people to say, I don't want to be my not self. There can be a competition, you know, how can I, you know, get rid of this not self? How can I get rid of my mind, you know, or the new age teaching? How can I be in the now? How can I not be a doer? How can I be the being, you know, the art of being? But then I can see what happened is there is so much effort in doing to being. Okay, I need to be being. I need to sit down here, try my best to meditate, to be in silence, <laughs> to be still. But then there is all this, you know, ego determination, controlled beingness. That wasn't a natural byproduct of the effortless. You just being you without you need to put effort of doing like there's this doing to being <laughs> that was very commonly in, I would say, the new age cult that I was in and also in all these meditational my Buddhism upbringing that I was in. I can feel like uh, I remember when I was in the monastery with all these um, very intelligent, like I would say, Buddhism monks. And funny enough, I look at the body graph, a lot of them have a defined emotional center, solar plexus. And there is a lot of frustration, a lot of them are manifester, but there is this, I need to be, it's very powerful, like using meditation or using some practice can be so powerful to give them the silence of peace. 
But then you can still see there's a flick moment when they go into mundane reality. They constantly being challenged with the same old pattern, the same old story. That is a controversy and dilemma. Like you can have a very powerful dosage of medicine to numb the pain, kill the pain, in a split second. But it doesn't mean that the roots of the issue has really been pulling out or released that pattern. Yeah. Well, now I think you're describing quad right. <laughs> you're talking about quad right in the beginning, and there's a quality to that receptivity. I feel like doesn't have an agenda.、Mm. It's not necessarily looking for something. You know, it's not strategically trying to focus on where is your trauma and how do we find it and how do we get rid of it, or where is your not self and how do we identify it and then make sure you don't go there. There's a receptivity. I think. Feels similar to me to that kind of openness and curiosity, and receiving the moment as it is, and then finding out where it goes. And I think that's not just because、uh, you know I have this identification of being quad right. That's also I feel like, applicable to everyone when we talk about the six line beingness. Everyone has the experience of that, which to me that is the experiential way, the experiential journey. If we look at the human design, to me, that's my understanding of the abstract circuitry. You know, we talk about the self-reflected consciousness, which sounds a very, you know, intellectual, talented words there. But basically, for me, it was just the consciousness is like the ongoing experiential journey, just being alive in the aliveness, in noticing what's being changed, and also not to hold on to the previous moment or what's haven't been changed. I feel like there is also this embracement of what is before you is all okay too. <laughs> I don't know whether that's my six lines to see that it's all interweaving to this moment as well. But I don't know if people will identify in the way. But what I feel is, if you look at the form principle, what I feel is the body truly doesn't have a judgment. The body itself is always in the now. The body really don't have problems with all the dramas that our mind think it has. <laughs>、mm-hmm. The body itself, it is a very right-oriented mechanic. The body is very receptive, and the body is just okay, adapting to every new moment. In whatever way the body can be very accommodating to all the physical challenges and things like, there is a resilience with the body. At the same time, there is also this vulnerability of the body. It has no idea what it might get into. Sometimes I doubt, you know, whether there are people coming say say to me, "Oh, I am a reflector," or "I am a projector." I don't have a defined sacral center. I don't know how to respond. You know, people can say, "I don't have a sacral." You know, how do I do? You know, how do I respond? But then I was like, actually, you do have an ovary. You know, you do have your chi in there. It's not that you don't have. Like you have everything as I have, but it's just how you recognize what you have. It's not about the conscious itself. It's how you recognize it. That is making a difference. Recognizing it means you have to change something. It's like I'm not going to change anything. At the same time, I'm not going to not change anything. You know. <laughs> so just in being with it, everything is already changed. Everything is happening while nothing is happening. Yeah. But when I recognize all the happening, you felt even in the silence. Silence is the most beautiful sound that you hear it. What comes up for me in all of this when we're talking about the quad right is just taking it all in,、hmm. opening up, relaxing. To your point, that everyone can have an experience of that, everyone can have a relationship with that. I feel like one of the things human design is offering us as a kind of map is to kind of relax into ourselves, to find our own lane. 
to honor what we are or what is most natural to us or most consistent in our being. And going back to the earlier part of the conversation, that's going to bring up a lot of stuff involving the mind and what the mind thinks is going on or what the mind thinks should be happening and what are fixations or stories or loops or patterns that it's operating with. Yes. When you talk about that, that reminds me of like two of their very old teachers, both of them from the modality of movement therapy. They're in their like 80s and I think one of them married for over 50 years. She said to me, she said, one day, you know, you woke up, you realize the person you married for 50 years, you had no idea who the hell he is. <laughs> he said, you meeting him this totally fresh moment as the first time you ever met another species with all this cellular movement going on with all these organs, because you are totally new you, this moment of you waking up. You are experiencing yourself as this new, fresh, new entity. This new day you wake up while you are seeing the other person. So that really opens this dynamic of how we can experience ourselves as we experience the other from this new, fresh, not knowing eyes, this receptivity peripherally, taking everything without this judgment, recognize what it is as it is, as individual awareness. It sounds very simple, yes, but it might not be easy, but you know, the curiosity is like, can we wake up as a flower? You know, the flower doesn't judge the other flower. <laughs> the flower just, okay, I'm here to meet another day. <laughs> yeah, so there is these things, I think, even in human design, like people coming in, we can say, okay, this is your map. This is, you know, you're truly who you are. We look at the definition. This is who you are. And then the people can go into, oh, I need to try to be myself. I need to try to be me. You know, even for six line being, you know, people can come in and say, oh, how do I be authentic? You know, <laughs> there is this, how do I get there to be like that? So it's like, for me, it's the moment is I feel like, oh, I no longer needed to try to be myself. And I just meet myself for who I was, which is also including like, I meet myself who I am. They're also in a way inclusive of who I was as well. Mm -hmm. I can't exclusive, like exclude my past. I can't exclude my trauma or a mistake or how I screwed up for life. You know, there is this thing people wanted to throw the part of themselves as the rubbish. They want to dump the part of them they don't want to meet into a rubbish bin. But I feel the most beautiful gifts you can receive is to dig out the rubbish, <laughs> dissect them and to take it. That's all part of you. But for doing that, it doesn't mean, okay, I think all the different modalities of therapy might be help you to revisit some story. Maybe there is still entanglement. But at the end of the day, coming to be who you are, yeah, just be you. <laughs> you know, it can be very easy to say, you know, <laughs> but I think it comes to a point, you know, when you feel in the experiment enough, you feel like, oh, I no longer need to try to who I already am. I no longer need to correct for who I am not as well. But it doesn't mean next moment you will, you will not be screwed up again by, by you know, I, I will, you know, it's like I, I wake up, I still feel, oh, I'm fe feeling nervous with emotional beings, or I can still feel I'm not worthy. It's not going to go away. The more I see it, the more I really can see it as a comedy. Like I really feel laughing at it a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned it and we're talking about deconditioning, I know that you have an undefined ego center, undefined G center. Could you say more about what you noticed about that in your experience in relationships or in relating to others? Hmm. I feel that uh, even though, like, say, from the knowledge, like ego center is the top of the hierarchy of conditioning, 
But to me, my understanding with ego is it has much more to do with the to do with the war conditioning, like social conditioning or social measurement of what is worthy, what is valuable, or with a comparison. So for me, I will say. Once I'm more understanding of the sociology and you know the whole Maya that we are all in, I feel for me the conditioning is more to do with the undefined G conditioning, and then the solar plexus. So I will say, if I put a hierarchy for myself now, I will say the solar plexus deconditioning is really something I can't do much about it. <laughs> it is a physical nervousness or the physical discomfort that I just can't correct it, or even with anything I do, I can do exercise or whatever to release that. But when I'm in that, when I'm conditioned by, say, I have two emotional defined children, I just get blowed by the wave. I can't stop that too. But difference versus the G conditioning, I found for me, my undefined G has got also the layers of conditioning from penta conditioning. So there is this layer of wa for me. So G conditioning to me is more about my deconditioning from my penta analysis. For me, it's about the raw confusion, like who am I supposed to be to prove my value and worth as a person in the family? <laughs> so that has something to do with that. But if you're just talking about the experience, if I want to talk about my G, because to me that was the whole thing with human design, lighten me to show me, oh, you don't need to be fixed on identity. You don't need to have fixated role because most of the schools, you know. We try to play a role in order to prove our value. So there is a deep conditioning, correlation, or stickiness between our ego with our G. To prove our values, we should just do one thing: love one person, or be one thing. You know, the rest of our life to show that we are good enough to be loved. That's kind of like my G experience. But after human design, it's like wow, I'm just here like the pure water. <laughs> it's like a. I can be this. How to say the glass? Like you know, there is like if everyone is a glass, I'm the glass without any color. Maybe a defined G person that they, they are the glass. They have a certain tone or certain color to it. But I'm the glass without any color. But anyone put any liquid to me, it can show up as a different color. So in my experience, is that when I have undefined G, say in a partnership dynamic, I will feel like oh, I'm the first one. I can feel love. I can feel the other person love me. At the same time, maybe I notice it before they notice me. Then there is a confusion. Okay, do I really love that person, or because I'm just mirror? You know, I'm just like okay, this is a red. The glass of my color become red now, so I feel the passion. I feel the symptoms or whatever the symptoms of love. And so there was this juicy part of it. If I don't know human design, there is no way I can get out from it. <laughs> you know, there's very hard for me to get out from that. But then. The vulnerable part with undefined G is also the moment if that person who used to be the person who loved you, who is very fond of you, the moment they changed, you are the first one to notice the change. So I can notice the a person already hated me, even they don't say. I feel it, and you know, then how do I do with it? You know, so it was very confused before human design for me to notice that. I guess the other thing for me to notice is also. Before human design, I was a therapist and I was a listener. I constantly listen to people's story, feeling people's aura. And the tricky thing with that is that I can tell people who is lying, because for me, I was looking for the purity, the authenticity under people's mask. So in a way, with my undefined G, I can tell if people are wearing a mask or not. But it's not something wrong with them. It's like, for me, it's to understand. Oh. What is the purpose of their mask? Is the mask come from this penta conditioning, you know, the family, or is this mask also come with wa conditioning? 
definitely everyone will have certain reason for the mask. So for me to see through that, and then the moment I can see when people through a therapy session, they take off their mask, even they, though they come with a defined G, it doesn't mean they don't wear a mask. <laughs> They're still not happy with who they are as well, even though they, they want to be who they are, but there is this conditioning, they're not allowed to be who they are. Yeah, that's something maybe to do with the G. I can mention about that. Mm. And also the other thing is like, I will be leaving the identity of other people. It's like, okay, my mother has a defined G, so all the life I lived with her, what she wants, I go with what she wants. I fulfill it for before she even noticed it. A mundane example is like, wake up in the morning, she come to the kitchen and without she saying anything, I know where she want to reach the next moment to the fridge of what food she want to take out for her breakfast. So I will prepare everything before she does it. And that's exactly what she wants. Like the direction she want to go and I will do it beforehand. It was really tricky to be unwired from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting example and, and the way you're sharing about for our listeners, Nancy is a 6'2 cross a mask with sun in gate 13, uh, personality earth in gate 7 in an open G center. And so I probably have never heard a better example of this in a real life context or setting, but the amount of awareness that you've brought to this. And I think the wisdom that you're developing in this particular area in, in terms of, you know, the roles that we can play in the family, the mask that we wear, group identity, the larger collective roles that are expected of us in the outside world, and then bringing in a kind of a six line frequency, which I think is really coming through. And a lot of what you're sharing is a certain objectivity and it's something beyond judgment. It's kind of a, a higher level of understanding or looking at something. Yes, because my personality son, Gay 13, the listener, is on the, on the sixth line. So whenever, you know, we look at hexagram, when we come to the sixth line, is another story. When I was looking at my mask and what I really noticed with the G, there is a deep connection for me from my G with my solar plexus. Because if you look at their mandala wheel, those gays followed their gate 13. Those are in the, a lot of them in the solar plexus center. It's like I always imagine myself when a baby was just born as a gay 13. I'm looking for different role models. What is the right way to behave? You know, who is the person showing me what to be as a human? I was looking for example to demonstrate what it's like to be an authentic human. As a child, I look at my parents. Most of us, how many parents are giving birth to the children? You know, they are already conscious. You know, most of them, we are all vulnerably in the whole conditioning field without us notice that. So as the children, I feel like I tried on different masks. Okay, this is the way that my mom showed me, so I'm going to follow her way. And then for me, by listening, what I'm listening is all the past. Because when people are sharing what they can share, they all share about the past. And the past is always associated with certain level of suffering. That is about the emotionality, the solar plexus. The passion never get fulfilled, the emptiness in being alone, not being accepted as an individual, or the needs never being met, the sorrow, the grief, the compromise, the sacrifice for the tribe. Or what I heard was this desire for collective experience, but they were hungry, but they're not allowed to be fed for what they want. And then there is a chaos happening in the life, the crisis. They didn't want to meet it. But then the moment they realize it, they already come to the end of the cycle or people quit the cycle, they jump out of the experiential way and they repeat the same pattern again. So all the things I heard was all the deconstruction of the solar plexus stream, all like people who has issues with 
taking consequences of sexual activity for the reproduction of the next generation. We become enslaved, like say mother role or parents role, to be trapped deeply in the penta dynamic. So as a gay thirteen, that's what I heard. I would say even as a children, not seeing people talking to me. The moment I'm in another person's aura, my mother has a total like undefined throat. She doesn't talk anything about the past. She always said to me in a childhood situation, she said, "Don't mention about past. Let's not talk about past. Let's never revisit the past. What's the point?" Which is totally valid for her way because she's total open solar plexus. She's a defined splenic generator. But then, does it mean she has a total open solar plexus? She has no pain. She has no suffering. You know, from the past, she has no wounded story. No, she's a human being. So for me, as a child, I feel like even if I recall those below the age of seven, I can always feel that myself in a bubble. Like I can feel myself. There is this invisible bubble around me. I'm watching everyone. Without me watching everyone, I'm listening to all the sound. Without the sound, I feel in people's pain, the intense pain that people never been able to spoken these unspoken wounds. So that's to me the first beginning of that was to do with my mom. Like there is this embryological connection when I was in my mother's womb, the pregnancy, you know how that impact the fetus. There is already the conditioning there. So for me, at the gate thirteen, this is where the beginning of my journey of I wanted to study psychology at a very young age. I was like five or six years old. I didn't even know in China. I didn't know there is a department called psychology, you know. But I said, I just so want to understand what's wrong with my mom. She appeared to be totally happy. She never talked about the past. She looks very successful, but there is so much pain that I can felt in her.、Mm. And so I wanted to understand her because as a child. You know, all the children coming in in a way like saying, "We want to heal our parents." You know, it, there is this.、Uh, I say, if you want to talk about embryological relationship, as a daughter, I say,、oh, "I want to heal my mom." So the beginning of my journey maybe is also to do with my undefined G. I don't know what is for me my life about. I'm living the life of my mother. She's my world. She's my place of belonging. She's my identity. So all, all I can do is to fix her. <laughs> But the funny enough story is, me with open solar plexus, and she has an open solar plexus, and we just don't have a possibility of emotional communion. If I try to play a role of a therapist to her, provoke her to feel emotion, that's never gonna work. <laughs> It can never work with me. But whenever she goes to see her own therapist, who has got a defined emotional center. It helped her, you know. So you you can see that it's very funny. So it's only it's like only after human design I realized that I was like, my mother with me silent. We don't talk. There is no talking about emotionality. All we talk is about future. Where is our directive future? Where is the logical future for us to be? What is the tradition of the past? What should we be? So it's all about very homogenized roles to play. But there is nothing to do with emotional communion or love. Yeah. I think that's so fascinating too to think about in terms of what you were saying earlier about you know working with any particular practitioner or teacher of any modality. So not only is there whatever embodiment or awareness they're bringing, but there's also their mechanics that they're bringing, and then how that interfaces with our mechanics. Then you can see, just like you're saying with your mother, there may be a very emotional quality to one relationship with a lot of expression, and completely absent in a different relationship.、Mm. And not because there's anything good or bad or better or worse about either. It may be that a huge part of it is is the mechanics. Yes, and there's something with、uh, open solar plexus thematic. But the tricky bit with it, Amy, is we just. 
are so afraid to speak the truth. We are just so afraid to talk about the truth. So for me, with my mom, I can see with two total open solar plexus. She didn't want to tell me how much she just never missed me. <laughs> like I remember all my childhood, we I didn't live with her, and she maybe visited me once a year. I just never missed her. When she come to me, I can tell she doesn't miss me too. <laughs> so, but but then we never tell each other the truth. But there is a certain expectation of like, you know, I should maybe miss that person. There's something wrong with me. She's my mom. Why do do I not miss her? Why I don't feel like this? Emotional love with her because we so associate love with oh I feel passion for you or I should feel a desire for you as a justification of love, you know. So that's very interesting. We want to fixate ourselves in this is the right way of loving someone or not, and then we we are so afraid to speak the truth. Yeah, so for me, one of the liberation from human design is. Like I starting from myself, I just speak the truth. It's like, okay, mom, I don't feel like I wanted to have dinner with you. I don't want to visit you during the Christmas time. I just don't feel like it. But it doesn't mean I don't love you. I I love you. But if you need me, I'm here. Maybe that's my channel of struggler, and that I'm not here all the time. I'm not here all the time at a very mundane level. But when you need me, if you need me to do something, if I say yes, I can die for it. I can do it as. Anyone else can't do it, you know. There is a very interesting point, but that's my, I'll say, that's my uniqueness in being me. But if I want to play nice, I can be like the past. I can try to just be nice and make the lies and to tell you, oh, I don't have time to meet you, or I have this or that. I can come with all the excuses. So it's very interesting. I felt like only through the human design experience, I finally come to a point that I can't even be bothered with coming with excuses. It felt very inauthentic for me to come with excuses to find a reason or lie about why I don't want to do what I don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, some of the reasons I think that we end up working with conditioning for a while, or this process of deconditioning can play out longer or go deeper, is because we do get feedback from other people. In other words, if we're looking at the undefined G center, and there's a certain fluidity or flexibility in terms of how you love or under what conditions you love and what that looks like, and then you've got someone on the other end, like myself, with the defined G center, who's pretty fixed in the way I'm going to go about doing it, giving a undefined G center feedback about you know what may be perceived as a lack or a problem. You know, it kind of reinforces it, and in the same way. Telling the truth often will come with consequences in our world and our experience. It's not always something that goes over so easy.、Hmm. I was just listening to a Locks Rave New Year forecast, and there was one part of it that comes to mind that I, I thought was really interesting. And he said it really simply. He was basically saying avoidance in itself is not necessarily a problem. Sometimes it's wise to avoid. Sometimes that's a good move because,、hmm. well, we can get into all sorts of messes and trouble in this world if we're just going straight headfirst into them.、Hmm. But then he makes this distinction and says sometimes it may be wise to avoid confrontation, but avoiding the truth, on the other hand,、hmm. often leads to bigger problems or longer term problems. It's a simple way of saying it and looking at it, but I think it's a pretty deep observation there. When we're avoiding the truth, our truth, then it's a kind of a going against ourselves or a self-violence almost that that happens.、Mm. Yes, I totally agree. And that's the thing. Tricky thing is people just looking at the statement or the keynoting, the simple keynoting that human design offers or avoiding confrontation truths. But what I realized was that you don't really necessarily need to go through conflicts to have a truth. 
you don't necessarily need to say yes to the confrontation, but you can at the same time say yes to the truth. There's a thing like say for a very realistic example is like when there is say a conversation I have with my mother. You know we have a disagree and agree, and there are times I might say my opinion. There are times I just have silence, but in the silence, does that mean that I avoid the confrontation, or does it mean I have my truth? I know my truth here. I don't even care to establish my truth to another person. Like just me knowing my truth is enough. But then the other flip side of it is sometimes there can be another addiction of using the strategy to overdo. Is like, so I'm judgmental, so I'm going to be anti-judgmental. You used to be moving towards it, but then you try to moving against it. So I'm going to be anti-morality. So that you fight against it is another way of you still. <laughs> there is like this point of you haven't let it go as well. I realized more the moment that I maybe really speaking the truth was a the moment there is actually no conflict around it. It was very funny. My mind think, oh, now I speak the truth, they might cause some conflict. But then the more I realize when is the right timing. Like I think that's what waiting really takes is always waiting for the truth, the right timing. That person is at the right timing to receive it as well. And you are at the right frequency to say it without your own agenda, because a lot of time when we are using certain modality, we can go in with agenda. It's like, okay, I'm going to use my human design knowledge, you know, to show to my mom I can correct you, I can change that person, you know, or I can change my partner, I can be another version of a human design enlightened me in change that person. So if you come with it, how to say that frequency. It's likely that the truth you are speaking come with agenda. It wasn't the truth; <laughs> it was pure for the sake of confrontation. But having said that, conflict doesn't mean bad too. Like I feel a lot of time through the therapeutic works, I feel those challenges with conflict. Conflict helps people to deconstruct something. Okay, if everything's burning, let's throw everything in to burn together. <laughs> But someone needs to initiate the fire. Let's let me initiate the fire. Let's burn something. So in a way, I feel like something is better than nothing. At least you know we can put something, review, burn something out, review certain thing into the surface. It doesn't mean it can be resolved now. Maybe later on, when each of us are ready, we can resolve it later on. But at least we can put something on the table. So this is what I feel like. I really respect manifester, like the speaking of the truth or the courage to meet the confrontation.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't say to people you should go with a confrontation. If you are not ready, if you doesn't feel comfortable, you don't do it. Because I have seen people going through like, okay, I need to do it, and then there is this issue with their heart or stomach. There is a further physical illness get triggered. That you know cannot be recovered. So this is what I feel like the dosage, like how much dosage you want to go, ten percent, one percent conflicts, rather than you go straight from a hundred percent confrontation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they call it titrating, right? You kind of work your way up, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of、uh, how you can see the sneakiness in some ways of the not self themes, the way we talk about them, and the way they can sort of collude with each other. And、mm. I remember working with someone once and having an undefined heart center, undefined solar plexus, and undefined throat. And then there was some moment that it was sort of like, well, now that I know this is the way it is, I'm going to speak my truth with everyone all the time, and they're going to accept me, and that's how I'm going to know. I'm being myself, and I'm not playing small, and I'm not being held back. And 
you know, you can look at that situation and think, I don't know how that's going to turn out. You might want to just take it one moment at, the t- at a time. See, do you have the energy to do that? Is it the right moment? But hmm. to me, it kind of comes back to what you were mentioning in the beginning about why do we hate ourselves? Hmm. You know, Why do we find ourselves in the position of hating ourselves? It seems to me like sometimes that may show up when either we are either hiding or avoiding the truth in ourselves in order to maintain something for someone else, or we're determined to deny or resist or judge the truth of ourselves. And so I love what you brought in, John, about that piece about confrontation and truth aren't necessarily the same thing. And this piece that you brought, Nancy, about timing. Mm -hmm. Mm. Is it the right moment? Is the energy there? And at least in the moment, if you don't confront it, do you know the truth for yourself? And you accept that about yourself. It feels like there's more love possible in that. Yes, Amy, like you beautiful pointed out, the end of the day, that confrontation is about you to yourself. <laughs> it's not about you need to confront everyone else. Yeah. The moment you truly confront the truth in yourself, you don't even care if anyone else needs to <laughs> resonate with your truth or not, if you are being you. But the most uh, hardest thing is that for humans, we have the fear to accept this, you know, the darkness in ourselves, the ugliness in ourselves. Mm-hmm. It also includes that, oh, I thought myself was this good, but actually all my action comes with this motivation. So it's like for my journey was like the moment I realized as being a mother, I was like, wow, I actually didn't love my daughter. I was so abusive to her. So I have to accept myself failed. When I say failed, I just say for that moment, it's perceived as a failure. But later on, I see it, it's just a feedback. That's maybe what the, the sixth line process is. I take all the third line experience, experiential way. I see the mistake, the fails. But then to me now it's, wow, that's a feedback. Now I see what is underneath that. What is underneath my motivation to be manipulative to my daughter? Or what is that in underneath of me being hurting someone else? You know, I can be feeling guilt and shame for the womb I also created for others. And so it's very interesting when you confront yourself, you have to accept the bad as well as the good, you know, the so-called bad. You you have to swallow the bitterness as well as swallow the sweetness. It's never just one side. (laughs) The great lesson of the solar plexus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Nancy, so much for sharing your journey with us and your very unique perspective. Are you, as we wrap up here, I'm wondering, are you working with people now or how are you doing that? Or what does that look like for you in your interface with people, with design or with therapy or whatever it is you're doing? Yeah. So I used to do lots of more like, I would say somatic therapy or I would say body psychology, more on that kind of spectrum. But after human design, especially until now, like I had a website that was very ancient. It was more about sort of 10 years of my life in the past. So now I'm really how to say, reinventing a new website, which is going to be totally human design oriented. So I call it like human design informed therapy because there is no other word and there hasn't been uh, anything to do with human design. We created something. And I know that Ra never mentioned human design can be a therapeutic approach or things. You know, it's never been approached that way. But for me, this is the way I can call it. (laughs) So I call it a human design informed therapy that in a way that uh, people can approach me going through whatever issues they, they are challenging, they are struggling with. Maybe with my channel of struggling, I really enjoy struggling with people. Like I have this physical energy to struggle with people if it's the right person. But then I'm also so aware of 
not everyone is ready <laughs> to have the confrontation too. So that's why I'm just making the website very, um, I would say, low-key and seclusive, like a cave environment. <laughs> so if, if really people are really ready for a certain level of dosage, like a, I would say a transparency, then you can come to me and I'm totally available here. I don't feel like I'm here for a mass majority. And then at the same time, I'm just making more like a free access of some recording. Like I started doing my own audio recording of the lines by gate of the Ray Fee Jing. So I started doing by daily, like record my interpretation of it, plus a version of it just to have my own language around it and put it in there for anyone who want to, you know, if they are on the journey of studying human design. Or for me, I really don't feel it's about human design. It's about you study the sociology of life. You study why we human become the way we are. <laughs> so for me, like the Ray V. Jing was, wow, like blow my mind. It helped me to understand every roots of psychological issue or physical issue or mental issue comes with a spectrum of epigenetics, you know, the sociology point of view. So yeah, there's something like I'm just making some free access recordings on there and then just see how it goes but i really don't have an agenda it's like okay whoever might engage me for something i might say yes or open to it yeah wonderful thank you i think there's a lot of movement in that direction for people to find the right allies for themselves and maybe in your case like you're describing the right person to struggle with you yes now that suddenly flashed to me was like you know, when you are talking to undefined G person <laughs> with therapy, okay, with my core right knee, so with my undefined G, I don't really know what direction, you know, I should point you to. So for me, it's more like I always, as a kid, I imagine myself, I always thought of myself as a bird, like I am a bird without feet. I'm a very distinctive bird without feet. So I used to keep on flying because I didn't know where to land. I don't know where is my home. I don't know where what is going to happen once I landed. Am I going to die? You know, my channel of struggling. I'm not afraid of death, but at the same time, I'm so afraid of death too. I don't have a feet. Can I land? Can I land anywhere? So I can see myself just being the outlier flying by myself without feet. But now when I revisit that story in my childhood, I just really see that, well, I'm still the bird without feet. Nothing really changing me to who I am better or more or less than I am. But if someone is ready to receive me, you know, you can let me land in your body. I can fly with you for a moment, you know, but there can be a moment of heaviness of another bird landing on you. And then I could go with you for a moment. Once you landed in your place, or I can land with you in a place you want to land. Mm. And then I will be flying away again because I don't have a feet. So I don't have a fixed place I can land. But sometimes I can land in the water. You know, water doesn't hurt me. So there is this fluidity with that, being a bird without feet. And anywhere is okay. It's like, uh, I don't know where to go. But when I'm where I am, it doesn't matter where I'm going. So that's a sense with the, maybe the trajectory of the bird, still without the feet. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah, really cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.